Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we go. We've actually taken a few stabs at this. <laughs> this is a, a an historic um, podcast because this is our first third take we've ever done. Yeah, we've done second takes rarely. I mean, right. like, I'm yeah. trying to think of last Maybe two time. or three times. And we almost never do third takes, but we were not. Well, no, we actually never have done that. No, we actually, yeah, <laughs> oh, right, right. It's historic. That's why I'm taking away from our story. Do you think, point. since the subject is sin, do you think it's because it's such a foreign concept for you and I? Exactly. It's, it's been it's, such it's a stretch for, for us to think about sin. We've, it's like, um, I know you're, you're going to make fun of me because I'm in, Tom, I'm in uh, church history land, but uh, the when Thomas Aquinas, the legend is when Thomas Aquinas had had a stroke or a vision or both or brain aneurysm, but he was on his way to a council and he died en route and he's at a monastery and the confessor goes in there and the confessor comes out like, you know, as if he had seen a ghost. And uh, they said, what's wrong? He goes, he had the confession of a child. He was that innocent. So... Which I don't think that's going to happen for you and I. But right. <laughs> maybe he was just like the stroke or whatever. Just he forgot it all. It, it could be. No, actually, given his life, I think that was. I mean, he it it grieved his soul to have academic arguments with people who were trying to undermine. No him. gluttony. I don't think he was that. I think that's those pictures are exaggerations. All right, we'll see. Yeah. All right, well there you go. All right. I mean, I'm not going to dis- I, I I'm not going to dispute know. you. I mean, I don't. You know, I have. Um, you know, when he was my Facebook friend, he—it's he, hard to tell. You know, it's hard exactly. to tell that picture how heavy he was. Well, there you go. Well, whatever the nature of his confession, they say a saint is one who confesses more about less. So yeah. even on that scale, he would. That yeah. sounds so, bad. So we're coming to our exposition of garish on sin. Now, in Jensen's section, Jensen goes from the story of Israel to the story of Jesus and the resurrection to the Trinity to the image of God to sin and salvation. Right. And the bulk of the sin and salvation chapter is sort of talking about the good life for humanity and good and the good life for Israel. And basically he just talks about sin as whatever breaks up this good life and yeah. then quickly moves into his understanding of the atonement. For Garish, Garish kind of starts with the what he calls the Christian presupposition of creation. And he's, he even says, I'm trying to bring this into conversation with what people who are alienated feel in a modern world. You yeah. know, and, 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 and how so much of our, as much as we value science and liberal society, these things are all not givens. And that, you know, you need a kind of faith, elemental faith to, to, for this world to make sense. And that Christian faith is a kind of having faith, but also strengthens and builds upon and, and grounds that faith yeah. in the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves on to this next section called Christ and the, the Christian and Christ, or Christ and the Christian. And the first section is called estrangement. So... There's that, there's that one prayer in the Presbyterian Daily Office that uh, we pray, I forget what day is, Tuesdays or Thursdays, one of the prayer petitions is we pray for those from whom we are estranged. So yeah. we probably all have people like that in our lives, but he thinks that's actually the fundamental 
I th- kind of catch-all understanding of the human predicament for God. And he basically says that in the Christian tradition, we say, what is sin? That can really only be answered from the perspective of redemption. So uh, this is, you know, Karl Barth folds the whole doctrine of reconciliation into his Christology. And, and you get Christology, you get the primal forms of human sin, the theological virtues, and the doctrine of the church, all in Right. One kit caboodle and three part volumes. He says, well, you know, Bard is right about he's he's doing something right here, but we want to go with Calvin and Schleiermacher and actually do sin first with the idea that it'll only be understood in light of the Savior. But first, we're going to go existentially with the, the, mm-hmm. the experience of sin and then the identity of the Redeemer who delivers it, us from it. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And I think it kind of, it makes sense that, um, it makes sense that Jensen and Bart kind of follow a certain path, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and for different reasons, different ways, they're taking their their uh, their cues from the early church. I think. Yeah, 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 and I think uh, Garish is following the more scholastic and then reformed way of, of right, thinking right. About I stuff, mean, you know? yeah, and, and the Calvinist way, and also for him, it makes. It makes sense in his project. Right. Yeah. 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 And his his thesis is interesting. Estrangement from the creator may, as mistrust, be guiltless. But as defiance to the creator, it is sin, which arises from inborn egocentrism and the collective pressures of society. Infects a person's entire existence with self-interest and makes the self powerless to achieve the purpose of its creation without redemption. So in, in the end of his first paragraph, he says that there's this that basically there's this one-sided conception of sin in the Western theological tradition. Then we de- identify sin with active resistance to the will of God. Uh, it, there, the, the, he thinks there's an unwarranted narrowing of all that comes between God and fallen humanity in Scripture generally, and particularly thinks in the message of Jesus. So he thinks that theology has two choices. A, you expand the conception of sin mm-hmm. to include a lot of other stuff that's that's less deliberate, less willful, or as you do, as he does, you come up with a term like estrangement that is healed by reconciliation that comes through the Redeemer. But there are kinds that are the guiltless forms of this of this kind of non-faith or this or the, of wavering belief. If, so if, if Jonathan Edwards, I think in, in the religious affection says something like, all sin is unbelief. Right. At, at the end of the day, it's it's not believing what God says is true about mm-hmm. you, about your good, about your well-being, about his provision for you in Christ or some form of another. So if you could say all sin is unbelief, then can you say all unbelief is sin? And Garish would say no. No, and it's interesting. Edwards is kind of, that's his, if you would, almost 18th century version of Calvin seeing all sin as idolatry. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, and Edwards is doing pretty good religious psychology there. And, 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 and that kind of reflection on the inward self is, you know, that, that kind of Puritan. Lockean, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and over here, it kind of, you know, they talk about the halfway covenanters and, you yeah. know, are you, are you really, should you, are you really, even though your children are a child of baptized, are you really, <laughs> ba- yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, he, I think he's 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 skilled at that stuff. He, what uh, so how it might be good to kind of break down how can unbelief not be sin or not be or be guiltless? That might be how he uses guiltless unbelief. Yeah, well, it's funny because he he explains this best at the end, so we can come back to it at the end. But he 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 has this little section on the message of Jesus, and he says basically the Apostle Paul. If you look at sin, if basically says if you look at the biblical tradition of Israel, there's two kinds of sin: prophetic sin and priestly sin. Right. Mm-hmm. Prophetic sin is much more willful rebellion, right? Like it's the people of God who are. Yeah, it's idolatry. Right. Who, and who forsake the poor, who worship other gods, right. who, 
who get involved in all these interesting adult, adult, adult activities that go along with some of the worshiping right. of other gods. Right. I mean, when people say, why, why are you so drawn to the Canaanite religions? Well, it's a little like Vegas. <laughs> what happens in the Canaanite temple sometimes it stays, stays in the or sometimes Canaanite. it doesn't. And that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. And uh, failure to take care of the stranger. Yeah, right. Sorry. And by the way, I don't think it's ever a biblical option to nuke the stranger. Just, just well, whatever. They didn't have nukes. That's true. That's true. You, could, you could say you could say some of the uh, some of the uh, calls to uh, wipe out the Canaanites was their version of uh, when they took the the lid off the ark and Raiders of the Lost Ark, sure burnt the faces off those Nazis <laughs> like a mini nuke. Yeah, there we go. There you go. Yeah, so there. I, well, there. So, so, so our good president's justified in threatening to threatening wipe out a whole people. To have a good a whole people. Yeah. Hey, who's the guy? Jeffries, the pastor in in Dallas, where they sang the hymn "Make America Great Again." Uh-huh. The hymn. He said, "I saw a quote of him. God's just not an open bordered kind of guy." <laughs> It's great. I love that guy. Yeah, I hope he was. I hope he would be one of those front seat Nazis in that movie. That's yeah. <laughs> um, so funny. It's said without any irony. But so you got this prophetic concept of sin, and then this priestly concept of sin, which is more like contamination, mm-hmm. things that happen in the human condition, diseases that burden you, and things like that. Now it's interesting that most of the tradition, Garish says, focuses on the prophetic, right? Right. To the exclusion of the priestly, especially, but then he's like, well, there's the priestly stuff in the New Testament, but especially in high Protestantism, there's this aversion to cult, to late Protestantism and, 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 you know, liturgical acts and stuff. So he thinks that some scholars are thinking that this is more in the mind of the New Testament writers than not. We used to say at First Presbyterian Church Midland, the only sin was poor taste. Exactly. There's no sin in being poor, only dressing poorly. From <laughs> Zorro the Gate Blade. But, but so he says, though, that, you know, that, but it's fair to say that largely, in the Old Testament, the 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 weight of sin is this form of rebellion, right? And yeah. and, and you get it in most of the sin lists, and it, and this is clearly the case in Paul. But in Jesus, you know, preaching good news to the poor, uh, sort of healing people like the Can- the Syrophoenician woman who who is afflicted, who is clearly, in terms of gender and race, is an alienated person, and her child has some sort of mal, like some sort of possession and you know some sort of traumatic psychological slash spiritual malady and these or, or the or the guy that says you know heal heal my child you know i believe help my unbelief right these are not th- this is not willful self-assertion against the creator no matter of fact you could somebody and i, I can't remember and i this is just but someone's i once heard said about every other chapter in the gospels jesus is ceremonially unclean right 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, it's interesting because uh, Joe Benedict the Sixteenth in his book on Jesus, he has this wonderful section where he says, you know, that every other in every other instance in the biblical tradition, when something clean touches something unclean, the unclean makes the clean unclean. As, right. Whereas in Jesus, the clean makes, makes the unclean clean, 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 like yeah. just the nature of, of his yeah. his embodiedness. So, so here we have you know these instances in the ministry of Jesus where. Now he sure does stick it to the Pharisees, and occasionally the, the disciples too. When that, when we well, see self assertion, regular basis. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. <laughs> the disciples get smacked around pretty, pretty, pretty regularly. So he thinks that that is an instance. Those are they're clearly instances of Jesus rebuking something like sin as pride or self assertion or rebellion. But or then, ignorance. Or, or yeah, and ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you do you not know who I am? Have yeah. you seen all that I've done? 
Yeah, and usually it's people that are insiders. Yeah, the insiders no, have power. Zach uh, Nick Nicodemus. Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's not you're right it's not the outsider who gets nailed for ignorance. Yeah. So there you go. So Garish thinks that that look if you're gonna if you're gonna like the tradition, find and you're you're gonna understand the the human predicament in light of the redemption that comes in Christ. Then you look at a whole lot of stuff in Christ that is not just, at least is bigger than just a remedy to willful rebellion, but also to estrangement that isn't quite the same. It's, 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 you could say it's unbelief. You could say it's anxiety driven, you know, doubt, burden, all these things. But these things are not quite the same thing as what the Western tradition has called sin. Yes, I would agree. Right, I'm going we agreed. Yeah. No, I, and I, again, I also think that, um, you know, the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate estrangement is death, right? And and that that's you know we've talked about this in previous podcasts that for Paul and the, and the Eastern tradition understands this I think often better than the Western is that you know the problem is not just sin but the equal problem is mortality being human because of the separation between the God and divine and the fact that we're going to we die we all die and how can I how can I praise ye from the grave yeah and this is actually you know one of the things he highlights is Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard if you said it the proper way but but if you say it the proper way everyone looks at you weird thinks you're it's, wrong yeah it's just so I don't know it's one of these things that you're just damned if you do and damned if you don't I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So he basically talks about, he, he goes through this little section where he says, you know, Paul is pretty much. By the way, did you put right gore on today? This is deodorant? No, guard. Oh, okay. I don't even know what I use. But you know what? I only use deodorant, not antiperspirant, because antiperspirant has the aluminum in it. And I realized years ago, that's the stuff that makes your t-shirts yellow. It's the aluminum. Oh. And eventually I used oxy, an oxyclean like thing to get the yellow out. Oxyclean is the best thing. If anybody wants some laundry trips, you can message me after this podcast. And I'm, I'm great with laundry, but, this, but if you way, don't want- This episode's being brought to you by oxyclean. Oxyclean, yeah. yeah. But you, so I, it's, you know, I only buy deodorant, not antiperspirant. So there you go. That's there what I do. There we are. So he has this section where he kind of lays out 
the biblical material, and he talks about the Apostle Paul. It's again, in this prophetic tradition, by and large, there's some exceptions of the bondage of sin and things like these, but largely it's in this prophetic Old Testament tradition. He says what isn't characteristic, right, is Paul looking at the something biblical as the origin of the problem. Like he thinks you don't see in the Old Testament tradition this emphasis on Adam's sin as you do in Paul and Romans and sort of— Well, you don't, you don't see it in the Jewish tradition. Right. Yeah. Now, there is a counter-argument to this by Henri Blochet called Original Sin, Illuminating the Riddle, and it's like less than 200 pages. It's a fabulous book, but he kind of tries to argue that there is something like this in the Hebrew Bible and some of the interpretive tradition. And it, I mean, I think it's, you know, he makes a valiant argument, and, you know, you can think what you will of it. But, I, I, but the, it's fair to say the majority of, of people— That would be the minority report. That would be the minority report. Uh, so what we have here in Paul is saying, you know, as all have come alive, all have died in Adam, all come alive in Christ. And there's this, you know, connection between the, the original sin of Adam and that sort of coloring the human condition and Christ as the second Adam making things new. Now, a lot of biblical scholars today argue, and I think rightly, that he's not, re- Paul's not really working out a sophisticated anthropology based on Adam. He's looking, look at how big the redemption of Christ is. He's thinking second Adam first and then reasoning back to the first Adam. Right. He's, he's not really like, it's not like Paul walked around probably before Damascus Road and before he right. works things out and had this Adam-rooted anthropology. It's something that comes no. to him as, a, as an attempt to sort of link how big the redemption in Christ is. Well, it's also rooted to his, in chapters one, two, and three, building the universality of sin. That all, so the idea that would go for him to the founder of the human species. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and then, you know, Garish kind of says that, well, Augustine picks up on this and, 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 you know, makes this sin as self love and then thinks about how it's propagated and it's through, you know, it's through, you know, natural sexual means and that's where, where the taint is and that's why it passes on. And basically says, look, this has not been the greatest thing, this development for the Western tradition. No, but I, I – yeah. And again, I'm, I'm not going to defend Augustine here. But I mean I think for him, sex is kind of the sacrament of uh, – it's almost like the sacrament of sin. It embolizes that the most basic thing that a creature does, reproduction, is somehow not under our control. And, uh, you know, in a day and time, in an age where the good life in part was defined by – can I be in control of my passions? So I'm, I am a good person to the degree I can, uh, hold down my passions and be controlled. Uh, for Augustine, the key problem is, well, the most fundamental thing creatures do, we don't, we can't have control over. And he thought in a prelapsarian state, when it was time to pre- procreate, you would just say to your members, it's time, and they would respond. That's right. And they wouldn't respond any other times. It's kind of, I mean, it's, 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 and what people do with it is twisted. You know, the ir- irony is like, Augustus is probably one of the few of those church fathers that not only had sex, but enjoyed it. Yeah, I <laughs> had it many times. <laughs> many. Well, maybe, I think he probably exaggerated that. That's kind of like... Yeah, when you come home from yeah, your freshman year in college, and you're saying, well, "Yeah, to, talking to the boys, you exaggerate." Yeah, right. yeah. Well, anyway. you know, we, we 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 I don't know, but there you go. There it goes. Yeah. So he was more upset about the damn pear tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan Cherry, you know, when he's with his boyfriends and he's stealing the pears. <laughs> I was so great. She's great. Uh, it Prince. could be a Billy Joel song. It could be. <laughs> it, it probably is. You know, it, it, what's interesting is that Garish then wants to sort of 
he doesn't want to dismiss this altogether. He, he even talks about this idea of self-love. You know, it, it, there is something universal in this. He says, you know, Christians infer the precise nature of sin, not just from the story of the fall, but also and decisively from the proclamation of redemption. The message of Jesus came as a summons of self-denial, and Paul's gospel announced the crucifixion of old self. It follows from the remedy that those who have identified the sickness of sin with amor, amor sui, love of self, are not mistaken. The root of sin is egocentrism. The source of this condition is in part the natural perception of early childhood. The entire environment is there to meet the child's needs. We might say that sin, rather than religion, as Freudians say, is infantile regression. In this sense, we can agree with the traditional doctrine we are born sinners. We need not dismiss even Calvin's gloomy observation. The entire nature of infants is a kind of seedbed of sin. But are not infants also seedbeds of grace? So then he, he kind of moves into this discussion, which we'll, you know, we don't need to talk in detail about here, but he, he looks at Schleiermacher and the social sense of sin. And Schleiermacher develops this interesting idea of sin as God, God forgetfulness. But he, Schleiermacher has this, he knows that even if we can't buy into the metaphysics of what Augustine says, the truth in it is we have this sense that sin originates in us and outside of us. Right. You know, it's interesting. People who argue for the traditional doctrine of original sin uh, says, well, you don't, and as a parent, you don't have to teach a child how to sin. <laughs> yeah. However, we are teaching the child how to sin from all the, the beginning. Time. Yeah, right, all the time. I think that's the, you know, that's the irony of it in terms of, uh, you know, it's one of those chicken and egg things that it doesn't ultimately matter. Again, I've, we've mentioned this before. Uh, regardless of how original sin gets there, it's the only doctrine in the faith that there's empirical evidence right, for. Right, right, right. <laughs> you don't need. It's, you don't have that's to argue. G.K. Chesterton, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like a Emo Bruner in his dogmatic said. You know that that you he, he has no place in his theology for angels. Uh, you know because of the mediation of Christ. But demons, I need. Just look at the world. <laughs> <laughs> Not my favorite theologian, but a lot of good quotable things. <laughs> That's good. So you know, and then he again, he kind of he, he kind of brings By the way, this. Biblical angels are just terrifying. Yeah, they are terrifying. Yeah, the angels. My favorite are the angels in uh, in dogma. Oh, where he talks that nun out of her faith. Yeah, it's like you know, there's deity. You you've seen the deity. I just like effing with the clergy. <laughs> <laughs> So then he, and we're so easy to do that with. And, and the, for those of you reading along, and it took us a while to see the unity of the chapter, but like, <laughs> but part of his discussion, I mean, he wants to say, look, there is a problem with how we've gotten this idea of original sin through Augustinian and Calvinistic right. sort of approaches and things that that are at least like metaphysically and scientifically, historically, they, they raise a lot of problems. But he thinks there's something true in them. I think people like Schleiermacher and Niebuhr give give helpful tools to how, to see why this is original sin is a social phenomenon. And then he uses Kierkegaard and Niebuhr to talk about something like this Eastern tradition that it, you know, for it's not in the East and for Kierkegaard, it's not that we sin, so we die. It's we die, so we sin. And sometimes this, the finitude, fragility, and anxiety is actually part of what provokes us into the sort of incur the curvature to self and egoism and, and, and violence and oppression and all the manner of things. You know, one of the most tragic things I think about human existence is when our good intentions and our best efforts end up turning out wrong, maybe for no fault of our own, but the unintended consequences, because sometimes they end up doing more damage than if we straight up done something wrong. Yeah, this is Niebuhr's great insight, right? Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, that you know, that, that Christian realism, you know, it kind of, he was cured of his early 20th century liberal theological pacifism and optimism pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. And early, and so, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you look at in history, let's just take the history of this country, uh, because Christian reform movements, 
have had a very powerful uh, influence uh, on everything from education to, you know, foreign policy. And it's you can do a really interesting history of America, Christian social policy, by all the bad things that have happened and the unintended consequences of good, well-intentioned Christian reformers, from uh, policies that end up legally taking land from Native Americans to prohibition to even uh, the massacres of Christians in um, in the Middle East after World War One was in part because of the influence of uh, we had so many missionaries over there. Wilson would not declare war on the Ottoman Empire. So it's there's a lot of it's it's just fun. it's an amazing in some level tragic story, and that's always so always. And again, I believe in reform. I believe in social justice, but I'm always you know. I always. It's a bold statement. I believe in reform. I believe in. I remember I was playing golf with this guy years ago, and he was speaking at his mini graduation at CMU. Like he was speaking at the MBA graduation. Yeah. Interesting guy. He was a Coast Guard guy, and you know the smaller MBA graduation, they had selected him as the student speaker. He says, "And all, I'm a little worried because I'm pretty controversial. I mean, what what do you believe that's controversial? You know, I'm pro life." And like, I'm completely against world hunger. I was like, against world, all right, pro-life's okay. But once you drop that world hunger bomb, <laughs> what about the half of the crowd that's pro-world hunger? Got to keep people motivated. <laughs> well, all I'm saying is, though, I always uh, usually uh, ask for my check, check, please, when someone starts talking about, it, and we will solve this in our lifetime, or we will, this will be something that we will overcome. I usually uh, Coke can't even get the formula right. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have gone to this, the Coke zero sugar free, and it is, I want to say it is pretty much, it's closer to the original formula tasting than Coke zero. It's part of it is because we're just better at artificial sweeteners, which I'm sure are all carcinogenic anyway, but which will lead to yeah, estrangement. Like, by the way, George, George Carlin, uh, one time, my favorite, one of my favorite George Carlin line is that the, they have determined that saliva causes cancer, but only if it's swallowed in small doses over a long period of time. There you go. There we go. There you go. So, so then, you know, he does wind up again, where the chapter winds up is this section where, where he does talk about Jesus' mission being to the lost and the, the least and the last, and, and that that is part of the gospel. It's not just an address to sin, but uh, the broader kind of estrangement that can happen just through finitude and, and, and being yeah. beat down and anxiety and these things. And he, um, he says in, in the conclusion, the nature of estrangement is understood not simply from the sin of Adam nor from Paul's controversy with the Pharisees, but mainly from the gospel. The malady is known in the cure. And what we need is disclosed in what we are given. In terms of our concept of the faith, there are at least two kinds of faithlessness, mistrust as well as defiance. Alongside the word of judgment that shatters the defiant ego, there are the words of gentle rebuke to those of little faith and words of compassion to the weary who carry heavy burdens. The message comes as reassurance to the mistrustful, and it calls the defiant to account. As such, it stirs the two-sidedness of elemental faith in an intelligible world that makes moral sense to us. Hmm. And I, I think that that's, uh, he says, you know, the gospel is a re reaffirmation of something in the depths of every human being, so that it is heard not as heteronymous or imposed from without, but as corresponding to the law of our being. It resonates within. This is to be sure, this to be sure is not all the gospel is and does. And he says that, you know, he'll unpack more later. But I think that that's very interesting that, that he, and he does note that mistrust actually can become blameworthy if it refuses consistently the reassurances hmm. offered to it in, in the grace of it and, ref, and reflects the pathological self-preoccupation, preoccupation of the victim and these sorts of things. So he kind of, 
you know, he, he, he leaves the doors open even there to, you know, mm-hmm. victims can be sinners, right? I mean, it's not that, right. It's not that these are mutually exclusive, but the way, and I just, I think this is incredibly helpful because and we've said before, there's 14 clubs in the golf bag for a reason, you know, right. like, or, you, you know, sometimes uh, like if, if you're, if all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. <laughs> and, and, and here I think Garish gives a rich account of what most people like probably know pastorally or just from the perspective of being in congregations that, gosh, this sort of like, th- there's more that the gospel heals than the sort of self-asserting sin of pride or that we tend to fold it under. But there are real wounds that are real forms of brokenness that in a fallen world. And yet the sort of uh, kind of rebuke to the to the self-asserter right. or the Augustinian prideful mass you know, of ego is not quite seemingly the message of the Redeemer to everybody in the Gospels all the time. No, I, every week when I uh, do my words of assurance, I always say that uh, not only does God uh, forgive us of the sins we've committed, but the uh, grace of God heals the wounds from the sins of others. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Amen. Amen. 